0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F. Lock the <playthrough> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the ears? What the fucksters? What's happening? What the fuckin' ucks? Where's everybody at? How you doing? What's going on? Everything all right? Today, you'll hear me talk to David Mamet. And there was some stuff going on with me that day. Uh, before I forget, I also want to tell you that our friend Brian Jones has a new batch of cat mugs that you can get. These are the hand-thrown ceramic mugs that I give to my guests. They've got the original cat logo artwork from our buddy Dima. Uh, classics. You can go to brianrjones.com shop to get yours. brianrjones.com slash shop uh, for the new cat mugs. He always does a, a little bit of a twist on them. They're all unique, every one of them, and each batch seems to be unique. I got a thing for ceramics, and I I like ceramics. I like practical ceramics. I actually went to a place down on Eagle Rock Boulevard that never looked open, some sort of ceramic studio, and hoped that I could find some large bowls and things to put on tables and surfaces in my new house, but I did not find anything. Ceramics is tricky. It's hard to find the... The, the right ceramic art. I met someone after the show in Pasadena who is a ceramicist. A thrower of pots. A thrower of plates. A thrower of clay. A wheel worker. I got to get back to her and see if there's anything there that I want to get. I Yeah, I've stalled out. I've stalled out, folks. Like the garage is starting to be moved piecemeal. I'm going to leave some of it intact for when I show the house. And I'm still working in here. I'm, I'm still stalled. I've stalled over at the other place. There's things that need to be done. I'm not doing. Yeah, I'm just not. I, I've got to re-engage with the process of, of doing my house over there. Or else I'm just going to be living in a half-done house, sort of half-empty. It'd be sad. It'd be a sad story. A sad story of a guy that made the big move and realized he's more like a cat in a box than a guy that uh, relishes and excites in the space more space situation spending a lot of time in the den which is the only room that is really kind of thoroughly done over there at the new place it's basically a, a a scale replica of my living room at this house and that's where i'm doing a lot there's the guitars the records are in there and the tv and yeah i gotta get going i gotta do some stuff man it, it's gotta happen so david mamet is here i mean that was a that was a pretty big day for me, yeah, yeah, I find him intimidating and, you know, politically he's a bit over the top uh, in terms of, uh, and I try to stay away from that and keep it, but also he's, into, you know, his opinions about theater and about acting are also kind of provocative and I was, well, I was a little ill. So Mamet has a novel out that quite honestly, I did not have time to read all of it because I figured I could... Talk to David Mamet about other things like writing plays, writing screenplays, directing, uh, acting. There was plenty to talk to him about. What I did not anticipate was that I would be ill the day that it happened. It was in the middle of my sickness. I didn't want to cop to it. I didn't really want to get him sick. I didn't know how sick I really was, but I needed to go through with it. I needed. I needed. I. I. It's not right. But he was coming all the way from, here's the deal. He was coming all the way from fucking like Santa Monica. And I woke up that morning and I'm like, I'm a little, I'm a little not right. I'm a little feverish, I think even. But I didn't, I didn't really know how to get through to him. Cause I think we did it on a weekend even if that's possible. I think it was a weekend. Was it? I think it was maybe a Saturday. And, uh, you know, there was no way, there was no way for me to get to him. He probably already left. Maybe it was a Friday. I don't know. It was early. I, whatever the case, I decided to soldier through and not let on. And I got in here, and I was very woozy. And uh, quite frankly, I started sweating profusely during the first fifteen or twenty minutes, where I had to dab my face with a Kleenex or the dish rag I brought in here. I brought a dish rag with me to dab my face because I was dripping sweat. I don't know if he noticed or he thought I was nervous or what. But I felt bad, and I hope he didn't get sick. And also, I I I like Mamet's writing a lot. There's a couple of screenplays that he's written that I love. I remember seeing American Buffalo with Al Pacino in Boston, and I just I was blown away by it. And you know, Glenn Glen Ross, who doesn't you know who who doesn't love that play? And and also, I was sort of fascinated with him too because my. First ex-wife was a student at the Atlantic Company and I remember reading the handbook for actors and reading, you know, writing in restaurants, which, you know, I was in Harvard Square, I remember buying it when I was, this was before I was married actually when I read writing in restaurants that I liked his concise sort of way of writing and I liked some of the thoughts he had philosophically, but I was sort of at odds with him about acting and then when my wife was enrolled in the Atlantic, you know, just the way that it was very practical, everything's very practical. And I just realized that, you know, he's got this disposition. He's sort of a, a worker, you know, uh, a sort of, you know, alpha Jew kind of, you know, work. You know, you just kind of sit down, and you do it, you just do it. You you know, say the lines, you write the sentence. So I, I found him to be sort of impressive and very different than me. I'm not making any excuses, but I was sweaty and uh, and a bit uh, lethargic. But I was excited to talk to David Mamet and I think we got along all right. I even reached out to, um, to his old friend, Jonathan Katz, the comedian who, you know, as Dr. Katz, who I've had on this show here before, just to sort of get a, get a pulse, get a sense, get a, an insight, but ultimately it is what it is. And and I, I enjoyed talking to David Mamet. So yeah, I just remember, man, going to see that production of Al Pacino and, uh, in American Buffalo. And I just, there's some things about plays, and I talked to Tracy Letts about it. It's like, where does it come from? Where does the language, what is the flow? You know, how does that happen? Does it all mean something? Does it not? You know, how does theater work? How does a play work? I, you know, I never written one. I I, I, I wrote one. I wrote, I wrote a one act many years ago, but it was straight up shtick. I wrote it with Steve Brill. Going Down, it was called. It was about to... Some aliens who come down to earth to find the new Jesus. You know, it was what it was. It was mostly jokes. There are these fantasies I have that, you know, I'll write a play or I'll write a movie. And it seems like, why not do it? You know, I'm at a level where maybe I could get it done. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm too scared. I'm too vulnerable or I'm too like, you know, you don't want to put it out there. But I don't know if that's it. I really just think it's about being daunted by following through with the task. Shouldn't there be joy in it? i'm not sure man there's nothing but struggle in the creativity that i've experienced there's joy when things work or come to fruition or you know kind of start making sense or kind of come into the form starts to evolve then you're like oh yeah all those years of doing this shit. look at that showing up showing up in the output yeah i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do something you wait I'm going to do something. But right now, what I'm going to do is share my conversation with David Mamet with you. His new novel, Chicago, is available now wherever you get Mm books. There's a funny story about your glasses.
1: Oh yeah. These guys?
0: Yeah, dude. Uh-huh. I uh I saw you. I I used to do I started doing comedy in Boston, Harvard Square. I used to see you at the cigar store. Oh, working up top.
1: Yeah, yeah. What was the name of that place? Uh I'm gonna remember it two two names. Yeah, yeah, like Leverton Pierce.
0: Right. So I used to go in there and I'd see you working up there, and I saw you walking around with these sunglasses on that with those frames. Yeah. And for twenty years, I had to, I tried to find those fucking things because you were wearing them. Oh, thanks. And <laughs> and uh, and I ran into some guy at the Y here in L.A. that was wearing them. I said, "What the hell are those?" Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they're the same, but like these are the ones.
1: That, but they're not quite the oh, same, my are they? No, but that's. Uh... Close, right? I'm, I'm very much flattered. These guys were like my fifth I- iteration. I lost those guys, and I was devastated. And so I was at the synagogue, and I saw a guy who had these glasses on. They those said, ones. I can't find him anymore. So he and I and he sent them to me
0: at synagogue. how often do you go to synagogue? Well, uh, every week. Yeah.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: I, uh, you know, it's interesting. Did you how where'd you go? You grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah. But how how Jewish were you? Oh, we
1: were we were kind of like Episcopal Reform. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it was very—it uh, was ex- extraordinary because my grandparents all came from uh, from uh, Poland. Yeah, and my grandmother was came from a little town called Chubyczew, and they were all Orthodox because the Eastern European Jews—that's all there was—was was right. Orthodox. Right. right. The assimilationists, you know, they went to Germany. Or the, right. And all of a sudden, they moved over here, and. Um, my dad had us going to these, uh, they, it was called St. Sinai by the lake. Yeah. It was Sinai Temple. Yeah. And uh, the rabbi was called Dr. Mann. Yeah. And uh, I mean, nobody wore a, a yarmulke, let alone a tallest. Anybody had shown up with a tallest, they would have burned him at the stake. So that was the reform,
0: like the reform was already happening when you were a kid? I oh, mean, very,
1: very much, very much so. Reform movement. Yeah. That was Jews trying to pass. Yeah, it was Jews trying to pass, exactly so. and uh, But I read this book years later by a guy called Arthur Hertzberg yeah. called Jews in America, really great book. And what happened was my dad's father uh, deserted the family, Yeah, just left them. Yeah. So here they are, it's 1923. A single mother, two kids, the depression, uh, not the depression, but she didn't even speak English very well, and she raised them all by herself, and nobody ever spoke about it. Right. Never mentioned. The old man just left. Just left. Yeah. So, Hertzberg says the dark secret of the Ashkenazi immigration was more than a quarter of the men just left. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So, I ask other people, and they say it's a common story, but nobody ever talked about it. So, the other thing he says was it was the men... Who took the kids to the synagogue uh-huh. it wasn't the women it was the men right so the men left the kids didn't get to the synagogue so the kids had no uh, when they came to this country had no religious upbringing why'd they leave i mean they I, couldn't stand it i mean here they were you know they're burdened with a wife and several kids they it's, they can't make a living nobody speaks because oh, they're immigrants right yeah. Yeah. yeah okay so and oh so they were embarrassed shame the shame and, and 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 cowardice. I mean, I don't want to indict. You ind- know, who knows? In any yeah, yeah. case, indict your grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I like. I was uh, at some amusement park, and there's a guy with a sweatshirt. He said, "I'm not a stepfather. I'm a father who stepped up." Uh-huh. And you know, those of us who have uh, kids, you know, it's sometimes it's 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 tough. But when you were growing, yeah, like how many kids in your family? You just yeah. there was me and my sister, and then we had a couple of step the stepchildren from the various families that we were farmed out to. You know? oh, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, so you you come from a broken home? Oh, yeah. It was shattered. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was interesting. But the other thing, talking about the Ashkenazi dads who left, was my parents got divorced in nineteen fifty eight. That didn't. That didn't seem to happen in 1958. No, it didn't. Nobody knew. Nobody. I mean, it must have happened, but nobody ever spoke about it. Right, this right. Huge shame. Uh, 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 perhaps even a scandal in, in the Jewish community. So there was that to grow. Yeah. Away. But like when, like I guess I'm curious because I was brought
0: up, uh, you know, Jewish, uh, conservative Jew, and uh, I know that you made, a, uh, you, you know, you changed your, you became more committed. Yeah. At some point.
1: Yeah. Uh, what was the catharsis that leads well, to that? This is a very good question. The cath- catharsis my wife Rebecca. I got married to Rebecca about ninety-one. Right? Yeah, and she second was wife, second wife. Right? Yeah, and she I call her my birth wife. Okay, why is that? Because so, well, I'm crazy about her. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing the first time, but I did it. I got a couple nice kids out of it. Yeah. So anyway, so we and she's So her parents on uh, a family on one side had been Jewish. Yeah. A couple generations back, but they grew up, her dad's a physicist, her mom's a yoga teacher. Uh They grew up kind of nothing in Edinburgh, Scotland, you know, no no religious affiliation, whatever. Sure. So she started questioning me about, oh, we're going to get married, we're going to have a religious ceremony. And so coming from a completely assimilationist background, you know, and being a red diaper baby, I said, oh, why? She said, well, why not? So we started talking to a wonderful rabbi named Larry Kushner outside of Boston. And uh, he said, OK, uh, Rebecca, you're going to uh, convert immediately. And she said, well, wait a second. Isn't it the Jewish tradition? Because she reads everything yeah. that the rabbi is supposed to pull with one hand and push with the other hand. <laughs> he said, it may be the Jewish tradition. It's not my tradition. Right. So you're going to convert. You're going to have a Jewish uh, wedding. Right. So, so she way, converted? Yeah. So there we we went on a, a pre-wedding trip we're in Israel yeah. and we were both studying from the you know I didn't read any Hebrew at that time and we're both studying to for so, because she was converting, you got involved. Yeah, because right. she went to a whole bunch of classes called, which is a wonderful movement yeah. called a uh, Jews by choice or or, or Judaism for uh, for people who'd like to convert or yeah. learn about Judaism. So I go, I started going to these classes. with her I realized I didn't know a thing. Right, and so then we started. Larry Kushner such a great rabbi. Yeah. We started going every week. She had her her, her bar mitzvah. She bat mitzvah. She, uh, and so Larry Kushner said you know, you'd be a lot happier if you learned how to read Hebrew. So he said, oh, my gosh, you know, it's so difficult. He said, no, it's really simple. Yeah. So we learned how to how to uh, read the Hebrew, and we got really interested in uh, in uh, Judaism and in the Torah uh-huh. and in the language. Then we moved out here to Los Angeles, yeah. and we met a complete genius, a guy named uh, Mordechai Finley, who's our, our rabbi now. Yeah. So we're crazy about him.
0: And, and did you, but
1: you know as a young man, when you were coming up, did you have a belief in God? I don't know, that's a very good question. I don't know, I think I must have because I started you know, scratching the surface and I said I I've kind of always understood that God exists, I, I, I questioned my own existence, you know. I knew God was there, I questioned whether I was here and if I was here, why? Yeah, you know. So the next question would be, what, <laughs> what, what kind of a god, yeah. you know, on an off day would create somebody like me? So that's that was kind of my entry to, uh, to religion.
0: To, it's, a, it's a classic existential question,
1: I think so. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, it's uh, well documented. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so we moved out here, yeah. and one of the reasons we moved is Larry Kushner left uh, the, his community Sudbury outside of Boston, and we went oh hoo you know, yeah. we ain't got a rabbi, so we moved right. out here, and everybody said, "Well, okay, there's this shul, there's this shul, that synagogue, and then there's this other guy, who is an ex-marine and a and a uh, uh, grew up in Compton in a in a in a, in a black neighborhood, yeah. uh, and he's uh, he's not like anything you've ever met before. Yeah. So he said, "Well, okay, let's check that out." And that's yeah, his temple. Yeah, so it is, it's assists And what is it? it Orthodox, conservative? It, what well, is He it? calls a kind of n- uh, uh, n- neo-reformadox. But he's a um, very interesting guy. He's a—he's really a Talmud Chacham. He knows all the literature inside out. And um, it's, it's a, a lot of Israelis are there. And, yeah, you know, he's, and, and he'll after the uh, the morning study and so forth on on Saturday. He'll a lot of times he'll he'll take them aside and he'll just have a He'll just talk to them in Hebrew, but um, he's uh, a hasid. Yeah. He's trying to figure out. I always say that there's only one question in yeah. life, right? And right. And the question was formulated by the greatest of all philosophers, uh, Daffy Duck. <laughs> and the question is, Faye, <laughs> yeah. what's going on here anyway? Uh, yeah. In fact, I'm, I came out here to visit you in Jehovah'sville today and I said, well, I got some time <laughs> afterward. What's near here that I wouldn't go to regularly? And what'd you find? Forest Lawn Cemetery. Yeah. I thought, well, I should go and visit Mel, Mel Blanc's grave and put a stone on Mel Blank's grave. Are you I, going over there? I might. Sure. Why not go to the source? So,
0: so you grow up in, in Chicago and what starts, wh-
1: where does theater start for you? I mean, where do well, you- Well, that's a great question. The first thing was my uncle, Henry, my dad's brother, yeah. was one of the two kids came over from Russia. In fact, he was born uh, in Poland. So, you're Russian-Polish? Yeah. Me too. Yeah. yeah. From uh, my uh, grandmother used to call it the Russian Poland, yeah. or, which is also known as Volhynia, and it was the Ukraine, you know, so one year it would be Russia, next year it would be Poland. Right. So on her passport... And on my, my mother's side, on their passport, yeah. it says Warsaw, Russia. Yeah. And on theirs, it says uh, Kubechev, yeah, uh-huh. Russia. So my uncle came back. He was in the army, he was in the he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he came back and he was an actor and blah, blah, blah. So he started working for the Chicago Board of Rabbis as their director of entertainment, imagine uh-huh. that. Like, Yiddish theater? No, it was like uh, it was like what they used to call the God Ghetto. Uh-huh. Right? It was 6.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. Yeah. Radio shows and television shows. Oh, really? And so, my sister and I didn't have any actors. So, my sister and I, at age like seven, eight, nine, started doing these shows for him, you know, <laughs> portraying <laughs> <Right>. Jewish children. Right. <laughs> <laughs> typecasting exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so okay, so that's where you start show business. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a kid
0: actor. Yeah, but what about when uh, you know, as you got older, what what compelled you to uh, to start expressing yourself like uh, in you know through plays and whatnot? What did, what did you well, start I, to see I, that
1: how it would work? Well, I think the answer was best given and most conclusively given by Stanislavski, who said, that's where the pretty girls are. Yeah. So, there that, was that. And so, then I started off in what they called, um, uh, at that point, they called it community theater. Uh-huh. In Chicago. In Chicago.
0: You didn't get involved with the, uh, like, because there's always a good tradition of uh, improv and sketch and stuff there. The Second well, Compass Players, Second City.
1: Well, that was after that, but I started getting involved with the community theater, yeah. this guy called Bob Sickinger, yeah, who kind of worked at Hull House and he created this magnificent theater. You know, instead of doing the House of Bernardo Alba and the women, he was doing the Brig and he was doing Three Penny Opera. It was fucking great. Yeah, yeah. And then I became friendly with the family that owned Second City in Chicago. And so I started as a kid, like 15, 16, working at Second City as a busboy. So, I'm working at Second city and seeing you know three shows a night who was there then like at a, like who was there well, you were a kid yeah so like I'll who? tell you who's there. It was there uh, was Peter Boyle oh, David yeah. Steinberg oh yeah Fred Willard um uh, Bob Klein Mina Kolb Judy Grobart uh Bill Matthew played the piano Fred Kast played the piano um and I'm gonna forget a few but they, was, they were great that was Robert Klein yeah and I, he was there it
0: was his I think it was his first gig. Wow. Yeah. Peter Boyle. So they, and they, it was uh, the same, it was improvisation, comedic improvisation mostly?
1: Yeah, it was comedic improvisation. So what they would do is, you know, they would, they would, uh, a lot of the stuff they'd work up off stage and then come up. And so a lot of it was bait and switch. They'd say to the audience, give us an idea. Yeah. And then the audience would say, uh, uh, Christ's Burrow. Sure, right. And they'd remember they got a sk- sketch, that's something like that. Yeah. But I, So, I was exposed to the whole idea of a seven-minute scene with a payoff, which was extraordinarily uh, um, uh, influential in me because that's what every scene's got to be. You know, if you look at... um, what passes for a lot of improv comedy, though, some of it's pretty funny, but it doesn't have a punchline.
0: Right. So that- You mean like sketch comedy? or yeah. uh, Right. It just yeah, yeah, like it dwindles sketch- off.
1: Yeah, like sketch comedy yeah. and like a Saturday night, yeah, night right. they just dial it out. Yeah. But the, you can't write, but the, what Second City said, that they had to have they had to have an out.
0: Yeah. And that was the idea. You, you work yeah. in that, you, you got a beginning with the suggestion,
1: then you, you, you riff and then you, you got to have get it off. off. Yeah, exactly yeah. so. You got to get off stage. Right. So, that really taught me a lot about drama because if the scene doesn't have an ending, there's no reason to go on to the next scene. Right. The reason you go on to the next scene in a play is because the first scene didn't work. Yeah. Somebody found out something that made them go on to the next scene. <laughs>
0: Right. You, you, can't, you can't just have nothing happen. Yeah. Yeah. Then what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh before I forget, uh, Jonathan Katz wanted me to ask you, how's your table
1: game? Tell him it's none of his fucking business.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I'll take it.
1: Well, Jonathan Katz, you know, was in my first play I ever wrote. Uh, John, yeah. I, it was, we were at college together, and I wrote a series of sketches influenced by Second City called Camel, uh-huh. and they featured uh, Jonathan Katz. Really? So yeah. you knew Jonathan Katz in college? Oh, have known for fifty plus years, yeah. and you guys are still good. Oh yeah, we yeah we talk every week. We we text each other gags, jokes back and forth. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, so so
0: did, uh, second city had as that much of an impact on you that you structured some of your first theater stuff around absolutely
1: that that structure seven absolutely. minute bits. Yeah, because I didn't know anything about a play except the only thing I knew about a play was most of the plays I saw at the Goodman Theater in Chicago were unwatchable bullshit. <laughs> like what? Like classic ones? or just Yeah, there? like classic ones. Cause because they had, at that time in, in, in the 60s, there were two things happening, three things happening in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, in theater, there was Broadway, right, and then there were the road companies of the Broadway shows. That yeah. was one. The second was community theater, which is, you know, uh, people getting together in amateur theatricals. Right. And the third one was there were a couple of theaters that were cesspits of culture yeah which means what well they did hippie shit no no quite the contrary they did really uh, accept you know it's like people go to the theater or no one in Los Angeles they go like they're going to the dentist you know it's it's been six months I really should go right right
0: Yeah, like like subscription people yeah yeah, old people
1: yeah so they're like 70 year old gray old Jews like myself Yeah. you know who come and the guys are looking at their watch and the women are thinking about whatever you know they're thinking about it's like a social responsibility exactly so which is very much I think part of the Jewish tradition, because I don't think anybody but Jews goes to the theater. Very much in the <laughs> Jewish tradition of reform, <laughs> yeah. of I'm going to do it. I hate it, but I'm going to do it because it's good for me. I mean, there, but, but there's something to be said for that. I don't think so, uh, because because it's my racket, yeah. right? That's my racket. I is, get it. Uh, what I get to make a living from doing is keeping the asses in the seats. Yeah, right. I yeah. mean, sp- other people could do something else, like they could put on a play that say. D- do you, do you like this play or do you hate black people? Do you yeah. like this play or you hate gay people? You know, that's a different racket. That's yeah. not what I do for a living. Right. I mean, I could do it, but it would be wrong. Well, I mean,
0: the, the idea that people go, they force themselves to go to uh, engage in culture because they, they
1: think it's good for them is not a horrible thing. No, I disagree with you. I don't think I, it's I, a horrible I, I, thing, I think it's 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 not a happy thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, fine. You know, yeah. because i tell you, I used to love Robert Heinlein when I was a kid, I read all the science yeah. fiction and he wrote yeah. a book called Double Star, about a guy, it's basically a prisoner of Zenda, it's about a guy who's pressed into service portraying the tyrant of a foreign galaxy To save the world. He's got to be the tyrant of a foreign galley. He's an actor in the year 3000. And he says, my dad, he says, he's talking about his dad is also an actor. He says, my dad could make the audience scream with laughter and weep in the space of 30 seconds. So, I read that. I'm 12 years old. I think, man, that's what I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) And so... So, like, okay, so those
0: that's what theater looked like in Chicago at that time. But there wasn't there also... What year are we talking? We're talking in the early 60s. Okay, so things hadn't broken open yet. Like, in terms of culturally, there wasn't uh, uh, out there kind of experimental theater no, going on. No, but
1: no, they were doing Eugene O'Neill and nobody cared. I don't think anybody ever enjoyed well looking at a Eugene O'Neill play. Did you ever? No. No? No. I You know, there was... Look, look at... Uh, at, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in 1967 and yeah. Sanford Beister was running a theater and he'd grown up in the group theater so right. he grew up with um, uh, the place of, uh, of Odette's. You Odette's, know, and, yeah, Strasbourg too, group theater, no? Well, Strasbourg had the theater across the town. Right. It, it wasn't- a, his, his was just a studio, it's called the Actor's Studio. And both of them were kind of the dueling tubas of the group. Yeah. They were the babies of the group and they couldn't act. So, like all people who can't act and don't want to leave the theater, they became directors. Sure. And Strasbourg became teacher of the actor's studio and Meisner became teacher of the neighborhood playhouse. I would think you'd like Odette's. He's not bad. He's not bad. So, you, what were you doing over there? You took, uh,
0: you said you're in 67. Yeah, 70. so I studied it. So, yeah. we did
1: all these scenes. Yeah. And we did the scenes from the, the plays that had been, that Meisner grew up with. You know, Odette's and Elmer Rice and... Um, what else did we do? We did Paddy Yeah. And- uh, You like him? Uh, yeah, I like him very much. I knew him. I knew him pretty well. Yeah? Yeah. In fact, uh, Al Pacino called me a, a year ago and he said he wanted to do a um, film version of The Middle of the Night, which is a play by Paddy Yeah. And it was made into a movie with Frederick March. Yeah. Kim Novak. So, I read it. I said, yeah, okay, I could do it. but. Actually, if you have the rights, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it a little bit better. So I rewrote it, and so Al's I'm supposed to do it now as a movie. I hope.
0: Oh, really? It's gonna happen? I hope so. Yeah. So so basically when you when you you know started
1: getting into theater you were pushing back against the the tedium of what came before you. I just I don't know if I was pushing back against it. It's just I could I'm sure you're the same. I could I could do anything in the world except be bored. Right. I could not fucking stand being bored. I never opened a school book in my life. Right. You could have said the Nazis are gonna kill your mom. I wouldn't have opened that fucking school book. I just could not stand <laughs> being bored. So when I found something that was exciting being in the theater yeah. and having fun and making stuff up that was I think it's like honey I'm home. Well, I just think it's interesting that you came out of really out of
0: comedic structure, improv structure. Yeah. That that it was about those beats and about, you know,
1: getting, you know, the efficiency of it came from you know watching Second City in a way. Exactly so and so I've been doing a lot of thinking about it because you know when you you that's the, that's the reason that you sh- you shouldn't go to school to learn to learn anything about drama because you're not going to because the only way you can learn about drama is from a paying audience. Right. You know, if they, it, it, so you
0: you consider yourself you you need to make entertaining things.
1: Yeah, exactly. So because if it's not entertaining, I mean that's the only thing theater is good for is to entertain people. It doesn't change the world. But, but 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 see, but some people want to
0: have that belief. I mean, some people there, there's an idea that that theater has a place in culture that that facilitates change and and and, and moves the dialogue f- further along. Which yeah. I think you would agree with that part.
1: Uh no. No. I completely disagree. And those people who think that are lying. Yeah. And here's how we know. Right? <laughs> yeah. Here's how they know. Yeah, when yeah. they get done and they come out of a theater Yeah. and they've nodded along and they say, yes, it's really true. It changed my life. Right. I guess people with cancer have rights too. Right. Then they go home. Yeah. And what do they put on, on the television? I don't know. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Uh-huh. Right. They don't put on uh, the story. Uh, They don't put on stories about about moderately interesting things happening to moderately flawed people. They put on something which is exciting or funny. Right. You know, people tell me about the poetry in the New Yorker. Yeah. They love the poetry in the New Yorker. Some people. (laughs) Yeah. So I say, oh, that's great. Quote me one line. Yeah. They can't do it. Right. There's nothing there. They like saying they love the poetry in the New Yorker. Right. But that, well, they can like it and not remember it. Right? No, absolutely not. You know, you have to remember poetry if Hell you yes. like it. Yeah. You know, of, yeah. Of course. If you can't quote me one line. From a poem in the New York, Yeah, that you out. just read two days ago. What the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> How did it have an impact on you then? It didn't. Right. Yeah. It just went in. Yeah, sure. Made you feel what better. It, yeah, that's you know, right. What what it is, it's a it's a, it's a codependent relationship, <laughs> right? Of somebody you can't read with somebody you can't write. Yeah, so, when, when you
0: started writing the, the plays that made you famous, you know, the, the early ones, like uh, what was your intention was solely to entertain? Absolutely. Because here's the thing. Yeah.
1: Well, I had my own theater company. I think it's 21, 22 years old. Me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter and Patty Cox. In Chicago? Well, first we started out in Vermont. We moved to Chicago. and The Atlantic? No, that was before the Atlantic. Yeah. It was called the St. Nicholas Theater Company. And when you're sitting in the back of the room if the people aren't entertained yeah you're, you 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 you're like a little feral creature right. the, the 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 1 billionth of a second of lack of a, attention yeah. you feel like a blow on the top of the head and if you wrote a funny line and they don't laugh that line's not funny yeah so and if the people aren't entertained yeah you got to go back to driving a cab next week <laughs> So that'll teach you pretty quick, you know, because you can't, you you can sync with your good ideas, but if you'd rather succeed, you better learn how to entertain people. When you started a theater company, were you aware of? You know, wait, what was going on in other theater companies? Of course. I mean, this was back in the 70s. I came back to Chicago, and the re- and the guy called Stuart Gordon was had something called the Organic Theater yeah. that had in it the uh, uh, Dennis Franz and uh, Jack Wallace and John Hurd and Andre Deschutes. It was a spectacular co- company full of... Uh, uh, and they were doing brand-new plays, and they invented... Stuart and was the director and invented this... The sui generous, uh, he got kicked out of the University of Chicago because they were doing Peter Pan as a kids theater, but all the actors were naked. Yeah, so he was. So he was there, and yeah. uh, a guy named Jim Schiflet was over the the Body Politic and across yeah. the street. They were, they were doing a play called Greece that just opened in a garage. Yeah, and for some, some I think what happened in Chicago was, the. Um, fire laws had been extraordinarily strict because there was a terrible, terrible fire in Chicago. I think it was 1910 Iroquois Theater fire. Everybody burned to death. And so, finally, in the 70s, they relaxed the fire laws sufficiently that little Th- these little theaters just sprang up, and we all worked with each other. So and, y'all knew each other, and you're oh, watching yeah. each other's work. Absolutely. Well, that and with was Steppenwolf wasn't around yet. Steppenwolf was just just a little bit later. Laurie Metcalf who was one of the, of course, one of the stars of Steppenwolf. Actually, started working for us, so you know, in, in the office. And then she's um, great. I talked oh, to her. She's in here. marvelous. Oh, what an actress! I just, I just did this play with her a couple of years ago called November. Oh yeah. And uh, and Malkovich and and Gary Sinise and those guys. Were, yeah. Just came down when we left our theater space. Me and Billy Macy, Steppenwolf took over our space. Oh yeah, yeah. So they're just a couple of years younger than we are. What is it about Chicago that? Because like, if you really think, like, even mentioning uh,
0: Dennis Franz and John Hurd, and then you talk, of and then you think about Steppenwolf, and then you think about the type of work that you do, there's an, there's that, there's a, an aggressive, persistent kind of you know, not angry, but just sort of a vibe to these to those theaters.
1: I think There's so, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do, what do you think that is? What, what is it, it about Chicago? My dad always used to say, Chicago's a working man's town. Yeah. He said, New York is the biggest hick town in the world. Yeah. Which, uh, compared to Chicago, it's true. The biggest hick town? Yeah. In terms um, of what, oh, just people passing through? No, no, they're the locals, they'll fucking believe anything. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ, <laughs> some guy gave $5 million to Christo yeah. to wrap the trees in Central Park in red plastic. Yeah, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> that wouldn't happen in Chicago. I don't think so.
0: <laughs> so it was just. A, so you think that it just comes from
1: the the kind of uh, no bullshit working class nature of Chicago. It might. I mean, also if you look at it, the literary tradition of the 20th century America is all Chicago one. Everybody came out of Chicago. I don't know why. I mean, to name but a few: Hemingway, Willa Cather, Dreiser, Richard Wright. Nella Larson. Uh they all came out of Chicago. And then later on, uh Philip Roth and Malinwood and uh and uh, uh and Saul
0: They were Chicago? Yeah. Philip Roth was Chicago, I thought yeah. it was New Jersey.
1: No no. Later on he was but he wrote his first novel oh. about the life in Hyde Park. Yeah, yeah, Called yeah. The Letting Go. He's a Chicagoan. You like him? I do, yeah. He's funny, right? Yeah. Did you read Sabbath Theater? I did. It's a good one. I actually knew that guy who he wrote it, I've forgotten his I think his name was Bill Baird, but he wrote the puppet puppet guy. Oh, that was a real guy? Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. So, you, your new novel, Chicago, is called Chicago, and this is like, yeah, it seems like it's the first uh, first time you've been back to this era of Chicago since the Untouchables.
1: That's true, yeah. Yeah. What is it about, why Why this Chicago at this point in history for you? I don't know. I was just thinking about it. You know, I mean, the thing about being a writer is you get to imagine yourself yeah. into all of these other lives. Yeah. And it's it's marvelous. So, since I'd always, you know, I, I said to somebody the other day, you know, they said, "What do you want to be?" And I said, "You know, I wanted to be a a, a black piano player in a whorehouse in Chicago in 1925. That's, that's what I want
0: to be." <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, but you I can don't do either. it. Even okay. you can write about it.
1: I can write about it. I can dream. Or I can imagine myself back yeah. there.
0: but uh, but in in terms of like what what is it that's fascinating about this? Obviously, this era of Chicago. It's amazing, right? It's Oh, it's it, spectacular. It, it, but
1: see, the the, the 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 book is all about myths. It takes a lot of the Chicago myths yeah. which are all about crime and corruption. Those are myths. Well, I'm not it doesn't mean that they aren't true. Right. But it, my my rabbi would say a myth is a poetic telling of a basic truth. Huh?
0: Poetic telling
1: of the basic. Okay. So it doesn't mean it's sure. un- does it doesn't mean it's untrue. It just means it's a poetic version. Right. For example, uh, the Old Testament. Yeah. Is a myth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a poetic telling of some basic truths. That which are retold in the New Testament is not a is not so much a myth, but it's kind of a cautionary tale. It's kind of a how to do this, don't do that. <laughs> the New Testament is. Yeah. So yeah, Jesus is uh, God's patsy. Yeah, well, Jesus shows up and says, "Be like Jesus." Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you look at the Old Testament, there's nobody there you want to be like.
0: No, they're all. They're, they seem like all uh, you know, very uh, having a lot of kids.
1: Well, yeah, they're people. all screwed up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're they're duplicitous and angry and wrong-headed and yeah. arrogant. It's just like you and me. Yeah, sure. That's. I mean, that's why the Bible is. Uh, it's about people, right? Yeah. And so, what do Jews do today? They argue about the Bible. I don't argue about the Bible too much. Oh, good. Well, so a lot of people do. Rather, perhaps not even arguing about the internally about the Bible. They say, "Oh, the Bible's a bunch of bullshit." Right. Which is just another way of being connected to the Bible, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because the people don't say the critique of pure reason. Oh, that's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. I, I, those I, whoever got through that book, good for them. Yeah. Yeah. Really.
0: I, I, <laughs> did you? No, right. But so, uh, so you're taking on the myths of Chicago. That's
1: what this is. About. Well, I'm I'm participating in it. Oh, yeah, because you used, you, know, you use real people in here. Yeah, they're, you're moving through real people with your. Some, fictional of, characters. Yeah, some yeah. of the people are real people. Yeah, yeah. People are the people. And, and and of course, like any creation of any artist, they're all the people I'd like to be or like to know. Yeah. And do you you had a good time writing it? Oh, I had a great time. You just
0: do you not uh do you just not stop writing? Is that how you work? I mean, it doesn't matter. You don't know exactly what you're going to write or or you decide to write a novel or what. Did
1: this did this start as a novel? Yeah, it started as a novel. I mean, the whole thing's a mystery to me. It's like it's like uh, you know, I go to work and I sit around taking a nap and read a couple books and Right curse myself for being a lazy swine and at some point you still do that say what you still do that oh yeah that's it's all i do so, <laughs> so at some point this a, a, a work of some description description shows up and i say how did that get there
0: yeah well like can we talk about the atlantic a bit
1: the atlantic sure. yeah
0: my uh, I, my ex-wife my uh, first wife took classes there and i remember like i, I got like it's weird because like the the way you talk about theater, and now the and I think the way you talk about acting is that like do you
1: so Shakespeare doesn't mean anything to you? No, I'm crazy about Shakespeare. You like Shakespeare? I love Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare is is the, the greatest artist of all time. Shakespeare and the Bible. Those are I like good the stories. Bible, yeah, those are good human stories. I think so. Yeah. So, but Shakespeare is not boring to you. No, not at all. No. Oh. Because the guy could write. Uh, Curiously, a lot of people don't know. Some people know, but they refuse to admit it. His real name was Billy Saperstein, but he couldn't. They wouldn't take the works by a Jew in the 16th century, so he changed his name to William Shakespeare. That is not true. It is true, and here's the test. Uh, No (laughs) Christian can write that good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'd heard that maybe he didn't write them at all.
1: I've heard that, too. Yeah, but I also heard that if uh, uh, John Kennedy had not smoked, he'd be alive today.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so Shakespeare, you're on board with Shakespeare. Yeah. Now, The Atlantic, what were you setting? There, there seems to be this sort of a practical approach that you have. Like, you demystify a lot of things. You know, you're talking about Meisner, right? Yeah. Now, now that, I would, what do you think, like, uh, I would imagine that his process in in his approach to acting was something that you decided was no good.
1: Yeah, I decided it was no good because it didn't work. No? Why? Because both here, everybody who loves acting yeah. and loves the theater and can't act yeah. becomes a theoretician because what they're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, I've written a lot of books on this subject, yeah. is understand a mysterious process. Try to get closer to a mysterious process. Acting, yeah, yeah. Because finally, it's a mysterious process. Some people can act, and some people can't. That's it, right? At the core of it, that that might be all it is. I think that is all it is. And the the the, the things which people might learn to make them a better actor are yeah. stand up, stand still, speak up, and um, speak clearly. Yeah. But those are the things that the kids don't learn because those are they aren't mysterious. They're just hard to do. So you, again, that's practical information. You're, yeah, you are not sitting there doing, you know, repetitions and colors and it's a bunch of so. bullshit. Because finally, no <laughs> nobody can do. Stanislavski said, he said, no actor can do anything more um, intricate than go over there and open the window. Yeah, because no no human can do anything more intricate. You say to a human, become more in touch with yourself. Yeah, the fuck does that mean? Yeah, I don't know. Nobody knows. And the people, men of my generation were driven nuts by women saying, uh, re- respect my feelings. It doesn't mean anything. You know, you can make a, you, you, one can respond to a, a legitimate request if the legitimate request is capable of being fulfilled. For example. Might be specific? Well, you have to be specific. You know, yeah. say, I, I don't understand what you mean when you say, respect my feelings. Say, yeah. well, I don't like it when you don't do the dishes. Well, then the, then the request would be, would you please do the dishes? Yeah. Right, rather than respect my feelings because it puts us at, at the level of one remove. So, when you say to the actor, think about what happened in your childhood, how can you think about what happened in your childhood and play the scene with the other guy? Right. So, I got all that nonsense beaten out of me by Second City. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, because they didn't go through all this process. They say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're a cabbage, right, and I'm a cleaver. Okay, yeah. on stage. Yeah. So, the whole idea of preparation is nonsense. You don't have to prepare. And I said that that at one point that the, the rehearsal process is all a process of a waste of time. The actors spend four weeks pretending they don't understand the play. Yeah. And the the director spends five weeks pretending he does. Yeah. When in effect, as we all know who've done summer stock, you got one week to put the play on from a dead stop, you learn the lines, you put the fucking play on. Yeah. Is the play going to be better for rehearsing it for an additional three weeks? No, it's going to be worse because what you're rehearsing in the rehearsal process is an approach to the material. So, why is it going to be worse? Because what you're rehearsing is indecision. Oh, I see. So you, you're trying, but can't that process be a, an act of deciding? No, there's nothing to decide. The decisions have all been taken by the act by the author. So that's it. So the, the, it's there. The lines are there. The story. Yeah, is what there. What didn't you understand? <laughs> I mean, you know, you read the play. You understood the play when you when you read it, right? But isn't there a different? Aren't there many approaches to a scene or a line? I don't think so. I think the approach to the scene or line is say the fucking thing. Yeah. You know. And you. I've worked with all the greatest actors in the world. You and, have yeah and that's what they do yeah you don't have to interpret people say who would you like to interpret your work i said i don't want anyone to interpret my work i'd like them to perform it so but but when i read uh, writing in restaurants and when i
0: uh, you know when i read her she brought her book the atlantic books home yeah. you know that it seemed to be that that you know this is just you know just say the fucking line right yeah. right so so on some level though not everybody can be an actor that's true so so the the school is the school and this is the process but either you can do it or you can't really like your process the atlantic process of 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 you know you know where are you standing say the line you know that, that's it it doesn't mean that you anyone can
1: act no 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 very few people can act okay Absolutely so. Yeah. Like some people can just say the line and it sounds like me playing Chopin. Some people can just say the line and it sounds like Glenn Gould playing Chopin. Right. Because that's Glenn Gould. Right. So,
0: so basically acting is a is either you have a natural talent or you
1: don't well you have to have a natural talent and the talent can be developed or discovered through doing it one of the but it can't be developed or discovered if you're not actually doing it which means performing for an audience because the lessons that you learn in school are lessons of subservience you say let me please the teacher right yeah i have to understand the teacher's way of doing things and if i uh my test of success or failure will be if the teacher says good boy or good girl yeah right but the test of an audience is not mitigated through philosophy it's immediate they laughed they didn't laugh they were paying attention they didn't pay attention yeah I lost their attention because I moved on that line oh you learned, you learned that I missed the gag because I moved on my laugh line right I'm never going to do that again right when you
0: write is is part of your process uh, do you do you do you uh, will you
1: put run it in front of a crowd and then change it no god no so once the thing is written it's written well well i uh that's a good question well, what i do is I, I write the best i can i say this is perfect then i put it in front of an audience and say no it's a piece of shit yeah. and i and i rewrite it until oh so you do workshop it to some degree or you make changes well no no i don't workshop i just put the play on right you know. but you'll change it Oh yeah! If it doesn't work, I'll change it. Yeah, I mean, because as I said before, I'm kind of harping on this. I actually do it for a living. I know. You know, it does. It's just like it's 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 saying it's just like saying someone has a wonderful idea of retail uh-huh. and they've studied the retail placement how dif- uh, difficult it is to learn how to place things in the store so that you're creating an experience da, da, da. but if you own the store and the people aren't buying the t t-shirt yeah you're not going to sync with that theory you're going to take the fucking t-shirts and put them in the back and try something else yeah but so when you do those
0: kind of plays you don't you just uh how do you run them i, I mean how do you, you you uh you put them up uh, as you can't put them up on Broadway, you can't put. You
1: just put them up in a small theater and No see what I put happens. Put them up on Broadway. What the hell? In for a penny, in for a penny. Not. <laughs> and, just have some fun and and then rewrite it. Sure, if you have to, of course. I mean, the rewrites are a problem. Most cases are not going to be major. Sometimes right. they are. Yeah. But the, most cases they're going to be they're going to be minor.
0: Yes. I saw Pacino do American Buffalo in Boston.
1: Oh yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah,
0: he's great. So, in terms of the school, it's still going, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And William, you, you know, you go way back with William Macy.
1: Yeah, go back to like 1971. How did you guys, so did, what was the process of putting the, the, the Atlantic system together? That's a very good question. I met Macy, I was actually his teacher. I'm about three years older than he. We are at the school called Goddard College in Vermont, this hippy-dippy-sippy school. And he was my, my student. I got hired as a... Instructor Were you a hippy-dippy guy? Uh, kind of. I was on, you know, I, I just I couldn't smoke dope because it made me crazy. And yeah. Uh, I hadn't yet uh, developed a fondness for alcohol. And uh, so I hang out with Johnny Katz and played a lot of ping pong. Yeah. Played a lot of poker. Yeah. And put on plays. And, you still smoke cigars? Uh, no, I gave I gave that up because of boxing. But uh, I guess now you can get Cuban cigars, huh? I don't know if you can. Yeah, you can always get them. It just uh, depends yeah, yeah. where. <laughs> you got to have a guy. So exactly. So uh, Macy was my student, and yeah. then we we went to Ch- what did we do? We were in in New York. We were working, and then we went to Chicago. Macy yeah. and I went to Chicago and from um, Vermont. From yeah. Vermont, and yeah. founded the Saint Nicholas Company. Yeah. And we kind of went our separate ways. Ended up in New York, and. All the acting schools, but probably all schools, are for the the benefit of the teachers, the administrators, you know. And if they can fool the students long enough, then the teachers, and administrators can buy a summer house. That's so. That's what they do. So anyway, Macy and I are in New York. We're broke. So we say, "Well, okay, what, what can we do? Let's." Um, I know we'll teach acting. Yeah. So we went to this uh, a woman who. Was- but not. But
0: was it was the was the idea uh, as a racket, or or you actually
1: had a concept. Well, I mean, as George Bernard Shaw, you know, said, every every profession is conspiracy against the, the laity. Uh-huh. So, what what are you going to call a racket? Is psychiatry a racket? You bet it is. Yeah. Right. So, uh-huh. is education a racket? Oh yeah, it makes psychiatry look clean. Yeah. So there we are. We're in New York we go up and say, "Oh, let's teach these students bibbidi body boo." Yeah. So then, <laughs> we figured we did something which was really kind of brilliant. Yeah. We said because how are we going to pick the students? Yeah because a lot of people I said they wanted to sign up with us. We said, well, are we going to audition them. So, you know, I as, as myself as director, and Macy's, and I said, no, auditions are bullshit. It brings out the worst in everybody. Yeah. And after you've auditioned three people, you can't you can't go to the fourth, you can't remember the first. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. So we said, okay, what do we want people to do? We want them to be hard workers, and we want them to really mean it. I know, we'll test them. So what we did is we gave a a series of questions. Is anybody who wants to come, we're gonna be interviewing you. We aren't gonna ask you to act. Mm -hmm. If you answer these questions, you get in. If you don't answer these questions, you don't get in. Uh And you must be on time. So a lot of people weren't on time. They say, well, fuck it. If you can't show up on time, I guess you didn't mean it. Oh, please, please, please. No, get lost. And if you answered the questions, you got in. And if yeah. you didn't answer the questions, you didn't get in. So we got people who actually said, okay, I got to, this is a stupid test, but it's the test to get in. So then we're teaching, teaching, teaching. And we said, okay, let's go back up to Vermont. So we got uh, rented some space at Vermont College in Montpelier. And we took a bunch of kids up there for the summer. And we worked them like 20 hours a day. Uh huh. We so we, we started off. We had dance. We had <laughs> yoga. We had modern dance. We did plays. We did problems. We'd do plays in the evening and then go to the Montpelier Radio and do a twelve o'clock midnight. We'd do a live radio drama. Huh. And we just worked the fuck out of each other for all summer. It was great, and a lot of those people, many of them, are still in the theater and very successful. And so. What what did we did we teach them something? I don't think we taught them something, so much as we we selected for seriousness. Yeah. Similarly, um, Strasbourg gets all the credit. For the act, the, the 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 actors of the Actors Studio, uh-huh. but this bullshit. He didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. But what he did is he auditioned every actor in the world. Yeah. So the people who could actually act got into the Actors Studio, and then as they went on to great careers, Strasburg took credit for teaching. them. And they were already made guys. Well, they were people with great, great talent. Yeah. And your approach was to
0: like let's take serious people and work the hell out of them yeah. and let them find their talent.
1: Exactly. So get yeah. them into the habit of because we wanted not to get too icky about it. we wanted people who are really serious about the theater. Well, there's a process of getting in touch with yourself Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's or it might be so a process of beating the fool out of you
0: Right. Well, I, I mean, that seems to be like some uh, recurring uh, theme in, in your arc personally I, Is it not I think so you know because you know like I in terms of if I think of you now who I'm talking to you know, doing uh, you're moving th- uh, a, a group of students through yoga, modern
1: dance, uh, and and all that stuff and movement. Would you ever do it that way again? Absolutely. Yeah. What I would say is, if I had an act like my my wife went to RADA, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and uh, she got a full scholarship. Uh uh-huh. And I asked her once what are the acting classes like, and she said, "Oh no, we didn't have acting classes." Yeah. I said, "What? The Royal Academy of Dramatic Art didn't have acting classes?" She said, "No." She said they taught us dance, they taught us speech, they taught us movement, and then they would bring in directors, the best directors on the English stage, and the director would stage scenes with us. So, that, that's what well, that's the, 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 like, Juilliard, I think, does the movement thing and, you know. and uh, Well, Juilliard, I mean, if you look at the beginning, a lot of those people of the first classes went into magnificent careers. Yeah. Because John Hausman took over when he re- restructured Juilliard. And he said, we're going to be serious. The acting part was very, very small. Speech was the most important thing. Yeah, you know, speech and diction, and all of those people who came out of Juilliard in those early years speak magnificently. Then the other thing he did is he took them and he threw them on the road after three years at Juilliard, the acting company, and he said, "Okay, get the fuck out of here. You know, okay, here's a work. bus. Yeah, you know, you're gonna do, uh, you're gonna sleep on the bus, and you're gonna do one year from a, a, a different a different a small town every night, doing plays. Yeah."
0: So let's let's talk about directing then too and uh, also like the writing adaptations. Like you know The Verdict is I've watched that movie once a year, twice a year. Oh. It's a great movie. Thank you. Did you like the way that came out?
1: Uh yes, very much.
0: And what you wrote
1: that was an adaptation? It was a book. Yeah. By a guy called Barry Reed. Yeah. And I only met Barry Reed once. We it was at a um, uh screening of The yeah. Verdict. Some Sid Lumet was screening it in New York and I watched the movie and I'm peeing at the urinal the guy next to me says did you like that film i said yeah i liked it a lot he said oh i wrote it i said whoa great work so and that was when i, I barely <laughs> yeah. read yeah I, I didn't and when you to, to write like
0: how what what how do you approach a piece like if if you got a book how do you approach that
1: to make a screenplay out of it what are the things you look for you just isolate the story well you got to say what's it about right because the novel's a very, very different form. A novel is basically an epic form. Right. You can get away with a novel with a, a lot of scenes on more or less the same theme. Yeah. Perfectly good novel. But yeah. a movie's all about plot. Right. It's all about what happens next. That all That's all it is. So when you make a movie, what you have to do is throw out everything that's not... You have to determine what the plot is, who wants what, who's the hero, what happens if he doesn't get it. And I, I said to people, I used to write a lot of movies, I said... Here's my deal. Yeah. You're going to pay me a fortune. I'm going to do the best work I know how, and you're going to hate it. Uh, that proved to be true. <laughs> it did? Oh, yeah. Generally, yeah. They hated it? Oh, they always hate it, yeah. And not, not, usually they hate it because they say, where's the scene where he talks about his love for the kitten? Where's yeah. Why did I buy this novel? Yeah. You know, with the look in his oh, eyes. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, 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 where's that? The guy sent me a script the other day, he said, I think it needs some work. The scenes he paid a lot of money for it. So he uh he said, Are you interested perhaps in rewriting the script? I think it needs some work. I say, Yeah, send over the fuck. He says, Well, no, no, no. He says, We're very uh security conscious. Yeah. I'll send it to you on the can you go to some place that is a secure link. <sighs> yeah. I say, Fuck no, I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. I said, I tell you what. If you don't trust me, send it to my house. Have the messenger wait outside for 45 minutes. Yeah, I'll read it, I promise no one will see it. I'll give it back to the messenger. Think, think, think. He says, no, no, we'll send it to you and just send it back tomorrow. Yeah. So they send me the script and it's on red paper yeah. with light green printing. Oh, yeah. I guess because you can't copy it, right? Yeah. And my what name is, is on oh, 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 watermark, right, dollar, right, right. blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I start reading. The phone rings, it's my son. So we start telling jokes on the phone, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. I look down an hour later, the dogs have eaten the fucking script. Is that true? Yes, my dogs have eaten the fucking script. (laughs) And it's all in red shreds. (laughs) And I got to put it in a garbage bag and I packed it up and I have to call this guy (laughs) and say, there's no good way to say this. The dogs ate the script, but at least they got through it. (laughs) And the reason I say at least they got through it is um, the script for which they paid a lot of money, I don't know how much, starts off a light, but not the light you're thinking of, a black light, and it's growing deeper and deeper, and you're getting closer and closer, and what's that? A sound, but no sound you've ever heard before. Could it be a baby scratching at his crib, a dog scratching at the screen? Could it be the beating of drum's rain or could... And this fucking thing goes on for. I'm thinking, what? You paid for that shit? So, most scripts read like that. Like my fake... So, my, my great-great buddy Barbara Tulliver, yeah. closest friend, and we, she cut all my movies, and know each other forever. We trade scriptisms with each other, yeah. like the scripts we get. Yeah. And one of them that she sent me was, outside the window, it looked like what had just happened film it yeah you know it's like an old joke but it's true is words cannot describe the scene which then ensued yeah
0: well you know getting back to uh, like this idea like I know you you write entertaining things and that you're uh, an entertainer but it, it, it does seem that you
1: you you like to you're a provocateur as well right I mean you do like to push buttons I like to amuse myself. I really don't get such a kick out of pushing people's buttons because it all. But it happens sometimes. Uh, so as Hemingway said, you know, write them like you see them, and the hell with it. Yeah. But I don't do it on on uh, on purpose. Too. But like with something like Oleana, you knew that that was going to drive people crazy. I had no idea. Really? Absolutely no idea. I, I had a friend who, we were in Vermont or something like that, and the friend was a teacher in Vermont and he came over for dinner one night and I said, what's what's on your mind? He said, well, he said, this woman in my class had a counselor, a woman counselor and the woman in the class said something to the counselor and the counselor brought me up on charges of sexual something or other, who knows, impropriety. He said, the woman went to the counselor and said knock it off the woman's parents went to the counselor and said knock it off but i went to the school and said and he said i'm going to lose my job so i started thinking about this and why well, i said can that be true i who, what did i know mm. so i made up this play so the first performance of the play was at the hasty pudding club in at harvard harvard square and after we had some uh, young people up from brown my i think my brother was at school then at brown and um this theater class and afterward I thought wow this is great it was Billy Macy and Rebecca Pigeon. I thought mm-hmm. this is fucking great and so this first thing I ever heard about the play was this young woman from the theater class says don't you think it's politically irresponsible to do this play and I was stunned because it never occurred to me that a play Any play could be, quote, politically irresponsible, that it was the point, the purpose of drama to be politically responsible. And P.S., who the fuck was in charge of what was politically responsible? Responsible to what? So I was stunned. And then we did it in New York, and people would scream, literally every night did people scream back at the stage, and every night there were fights after the play in the audience, on the verge of the physical generally men and women taking one side or the other but the sides differed every night and then one night uh, Mary McCann who replaced Rebecca was coming off stage out of the artist uh, artist entrance and she got punched by an audience because it drove people crazy yeah just drove people crazy right and you had no idea it would do that no idea How, how could you know I guess well because you know my good friend Billy Saperstein you know wrote under the name of Shakespeare yeah in uh, Hamlet, Hamlet says to uh, Horatio, he says, I, I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play may be so moved to blah, blah, blah that they lose their fucking mind. So, I read that, you know, and I thought, yeah, okay, but but not really. Yeah. But I, I saw it. I saw it every night. Was that the first time you saw that? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Did, did, what happened with the, did that kind of stuff happen with race as well? Interesting. No. Race was, I mean, it was just, it was all in the press about race Uh because I loved doing race, man. I loved it. It was the biggest percentage of African-Americans at the Broadway theater of all time. Yeah, because people say, you know, we need to have a dialogue about race, but what that means is shut the fuck up. Right. Yeah, so- well, because nobody wants to have a dialogue about race, because it's too much. It's too much of a. We're, we're having a dialogue about race. It's called America, Yeah. right? So, to me, the dialogue about race is the commercials at the Olympics. Because uh-huh. if you look at them, it's it's stunning. Every commercial, everyone, if there's a black person, there's a white person. If there's a white person, there's a black person. The large percentage of the couples in the commercials are mixed race. Yeah, that I've noticed that lately. Yeah, because that's the country. Uh, uh, California is more than 20% of of, 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 of uh, marriages are mixed race. So the dialogue about race is not that people learn because yeah. you know being people we know that people don't learn, but that people die. Yeah. And a new generation has a different view of race. How are you feeling about where the country's going now? Well, the country's always going down the tubes. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 what it is. <laughs> That's that's the great experiment. I mean, that's the definition of a you know you got to read Gibbon you know decline and fall of the American of the Roman Empire. That's what a country does yeah. is, is it falls apart. So the question is not why is it falling apart but what what is residually keeping it together and the answer is the uh, constitution and the culture. Yeah. And the culture the culture evolves.
0: Yeah. And there you have it. Are, are you? Uh, uh, do you feel? Uh, what's what's exciting right now?
1: Well, the, the exciting thing to me is a Ford commercial. Yeah. Because there was the Ford had a series doing a series of commercials, and the first time there are commercials featuring a guy in a yarmulke. Yeah. I, it's stunning. I mean, especially you know I was born two years after the Holocaust. You know. Yeah. And um, my grandparents all came over from the old country. Everybody who stayed there was either killed by Hitler or Stalin. And here's a guy in a yarmulke, but he's a young father. He's not a, a, a daity-daity schmuck Jew, yeah. you know, which is what we grew up with. And yeah. you know, anybody a yarmulke is a fucking fool. Uh-huh. He's an actual serious Jew. In the Ford commercial. In the Ford commercials. And when I was a kid, Jews did not buy Fords. No Jew ever bought a Ford because Ford was the world's greatest anti-Semite. Right. A committed anti-Semite. Right. And so now Ford is coming around and uh, there's a guy in a yarmulke and nobody says anything about it, which is to me the the real uh, uh, telltale of a cultural change is that it's unremarkable. That's good. Yeah. So let me ask you another thing about what,
0: what do you... I was trying to think about how to, how, to, how to frame it in terms of story and stuff. But, like, what is it about conspiracy-minded, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of um, appeal of uh, pseudo-history and conspiracy thinking at this point in time, and any point in time? Because these stories that, you know, sort of you know, manifest on the far right and, and, and sort of, you know, grab hold, I mean, th- this is something, this is a human condition thing. Right, the 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 sort of locking on to those stories that almost in a in a religious way to explain things, even though they seem
1: to be clearly crazy. Well, it's not just the right; it's the left sure. too. It's, sure, sure. Yeah, right. it's I, the human condition. Right. It's like people say, "Oh, how can you uh, how can you believe in religion when so many bad things have been done in the name of religion?" Yeah. Well, the bad things done in the name of religion were done by bad people. Right. It's not that religion is bad. You know, it's the people that are fucking bad. Yeah, and it's not—it's not that the right or the left is bad. It's the people are bad. We're all crazy, and we, and we love to have something to hate. Yeah, and but, but isn't
0: it? Doesn't it strike you? Do you do you have any sense of this 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 nebulousness of of, of established truth? like uh, yeah, maybe that's not maybe I'm not saying it right that that there's some there seems to be some sort of shifting to where everything's untethered and and we don't you know we're not getting a sense of what
1: that truth is culturally well yes i, I mean but but you know they say that the, uh, every dem- the the the, demo- the great democracies don't they are to overcome, they commit suicide, uh-huh. you know, because at some point, the because the, the, the idea of freedom and the idea of responsibility are always warring on the right and the left mm-hmm. and over time and in each of us at every moment. So the question is, what's true? I was listening to my good friend Dennis Prager today on the radio, and he was having a time of his life because he just came across this study by some guy for the American Academy of Pediatrics about how to treat children on the beach. They should not walk on sand. They should not st- dig in the sand. They should wear shoes of that are ventilated and have hard toes to forgive them, get them, blah blah blah. And they should not uh, go in the water with, and blah blah blah. Uh-huh. And so he's saying, it occurred to him years ago that anything which says studies show is either obvious or bullshit. Uh-huh. So he said, how he said, how does this? stack up to our experience so when we put ourselves in the in the frame of, uh, of mind of being a uh, philosophical taking an overview things look complex and because they're complex they create uh, anxiety and because they're anxiety they create resentment and anger but on the other hand if we're simply walking down to the f- supermarket we get along pretty well with each other You're right i mean it's a it's a magnificent country it's the best country in the history of the world
0: well, you seem to be able to uh, uh compartmentalize uh your your political and religious and creative lives in, yeah in well life. you know
1: what it, uh, well here's what I think it's like you go to the dentist right the dentist gives you laughing gas and they yeah. give you blah 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 yeah you're in a you're in a different state you're in an altered state you're right. your um resistance is down. It would You wouldn't think it correct of the dentist to start at that point talking to you about politics. right? Say, listen, since I have you in my chair and since I have this <laughs> instrument I just gave you laughing gas, yes, I'm going to tell you some stuff that I th- you think you may, dentist, you may know that, but this is not the place. Yeah. So that's how I feel about the theater. Yeah. I may have very, very strong political beliefs, but the theater is not. You didn't come to the theater to hear my political beliefs. You came to the theater, whether you know it or not, I know it, to have a good time. And that's my job. Ricky Jay, yeah, he's in a lot of your movies, yeah. particularly. How do you know him? How far back do you go with that guy? We met a million years ago. He had been working with the great, the lighting designer and designer Jules Fisher in New York, and it was my, maybe my fortieth birthday. And I said, Jules said, "What? Do you, what can I get you for your birthday?" I said, "Well, I'd love Ricky J to come to perform at the birthday party. So Jules said, no, and of course, you know, Ricky doesn't do that, no, no, no. So ding dong, Jules shows up and he brings Ricky and yeah. Ricky performed at the, my birthday party, God bless him. <laughs> you like magic? I'm crazy about magic. Yeah. Why? Because, you know, well, because Jews love magic, you know. Yeah. I mean, all the great magicians of all time were, were Jewish and are Jewish uh-huh. because we love the idea of, I guess we love the idea of miracles and also we love the minutia of it. You know the and also we love the idea that what you're seeing, what the audience is seeing, is very important to a dramatist. Is not what you're doing. You're doing something very very different Hmm. than what they're seeing. And in fact, a lot of magic books will say how the trick appears, how the trick is done. Yeah. So Ricky and I became and still are very very close, and I directed a couple of his shows. And uh, uh, in fact, we're doing a a talk at. New Road School about my book we're flogging my book yeah. and he's going to be he graciously can, consented to be the interlocutor
0: oh yeah he's going to moderate yeah what is this I read this morning about a, a Harvey Weinstein play you believe that no I <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it just seemed like a, 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 could you have written that
1: that quickly uh, yeah I could yeah, yeah. so I'm, I was talking to my friend Jeff Richards in New York who produced all of my plays on Broadway yeah wonderful guy and he said, oh, my God, why don't you write a play about Harvey? So I said, no, no, I don't want to fuck a play on Harvey. I don't to fuck Harvey. But then it was something I had to do, right? Something I was contracted to do. So the best way to get a writer to write something new is to give him something he has to do, because he'll never do that. So wait, do you, So they, he made you a deal? No, no, not at all. He just gave me an idea. Oh, okay. so rather than doing this thing that I was contracted to do, yeah. which was late, right? I said, "Oh, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll write a play. I'll write this other play." And but what, it's not about really about Harvey, is it? It's full, full it, three act play. Yeah, yeah. It's about another guy of, of that name. Okay, how how are you reacting
0: to this this wave of of, of um, this turmoil around harassment and uh, and um, you know inappropriateness it, it, it's like how do you how, how do you feel about what's happening
1: As everything a, goes everything goes back to the 1960s everything i mean goes back everything goes back to the vietnam war yeah. and the birth control pill so uh-huh. if you take the genie of sex that people have been trying every society tries to keep the genie of sex in in the bottle yeah and no society does very very well at it and so a a a very a, 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 a society with a strong and universal culture not only has ways of dealing with yes or no but has ways of dealing with transgressions. Uh-huh. Here's what you do when you transgress. Right. But when the society, but the the introduction of the pill and the introduction of um, antibiotics uncapped. 10,000 years of, uh, and changed 10,000 years of dealing with human sexuality. Sure. For the first time in the world. No consequences. There's no consequences, except, of course, what do you have better greater consequences than than those things with no consequences? The consequences were unforeseeable, so the consequences are playing themselves out. And one of the things that I think about is that one of the tenets of... Western culture which is basically judeo uh, it is judeo Christian culture mm-hmm. is that women need to be taken care of that's a responsibility of the society and the responsibility of men to protect women yeah because why they have to have children right mm-hmm. they, 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 they take them out of the worth the workforce they uh, they, um, they, they walk around uh, pregnant and something that always impressed me is the the um, watching a, a pregnant woman, especially a young pregnant woman, walk around with an- with there is an aura of unassailability around her which she understands and which she understands that the people- does not to mean that God forbid she wouldn't be molested but she is protected by a, the deepest cultural understanding of her necessity for protection. Mm-hmm. We know that to be true.
0: So, do you see this as a a like a cultural contraction?
1: I don't know. Yeah. Um, the, the question is, as is always, hypocrisy, which, you know, as Voltaire said, is the, uh, the amend that uh, vice uh, uh, pays the virtue. Mm-hmm. But the women do need to be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they shouldn't have to see a dick at work. Well, exactly so. <laughs> I mean exactly. So I mean, on the other hand, so, if we're, gonna, so we're going through a period of, that's somewhat of the terror, because the other the, the other greatest change since the '60s is the computer age, where there's, there's instant communication, which in a certain ways puts everybody on the same page and in other ways destroys the individual cultures like I wrote a lot in my book where the, it takes place a lot of takes place in a black whorehouse in Chicago where the, the madam is explaining to this guy why the Irish need their daughter to marry an Irishman yeah and so the guy says oh of course so that she'll carry on the traditions of the Irish family and the horse says no it's so she won't come home <laughs> Right, yeah. So, the Irish share this tradition of in uh, this culture, here's the amount of times you, my son-in-law, are capable of cheating on your wife, past which we're going to beat you up. Here's the amount of times you're capable of hitting me up for a loan, blah, 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 bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Yeah. You married her, you keep her. So, I, there, there's a certain amount of that which has gone away. I mean, who knows? When I was a kid, we used to have these marriage ceremonies saying, I vow to respect your space. Well, what the fuck does that mean? What was that? Oh, that was when kids started writing their own marriage ceremonies. Right. Right. I vow to respect your space. You have is that is, is that uh, that seems uh, uh, that, that 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 means nothing to you. Doesn't mean it means nothing to anybody. <laughs> what does it mean? How do you know when you're respecting somebody's space or not? You say I vow not to cheat on well, you. Okay, I can tell. I yeah. vow, I vow to, vow to, I vow to uh, uh, have sex with you whenever you want. Okay, right. I can tell. Right. I vow to pay the bills. I can yeah. tell. Yeah, I vow to respect your space. Doesn't mean it, it, you can't. Um, you can't. Uh, it's like it's like shitty poetry. It's dreadful. I was talking to my sister when she was married to somebody and say, what's the problem? Your marriage falling apart. She says, yeah, he doesn't respect my needs. What needs are those? The needs to be respected. Respected about what? Respected about my my vision. Vision for what? About fucking what? You know? Yeah. Did you get down to it? I think, uh, no. <laughs> no. But, you know, as they used to say in the prisons, <laughs> give it a name. Yeah. You know, give it a name. Yeah. My rabbi's just come out with a new book and one of the things is the 10 contrarian ru- r- rules for marriage. One of them is don't share your feelings. Yeah. I thought that's genius. Yeah. Because if we say well, we need to share our feelings. Well, you don't say we need to share our feelings of love for each other because you do that anyway. Yeah. So, what feelings is it that you say that I need to share? My feelings of resentment or disappointment. Yeah. It was an idea from the 60s. I can't keep those things in. But that's he says, and he's correct. That's one of the secrets of a good marriage: keep it in. Yeah, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, what I mean? you know, just uh, suck it up. Well, oh, yeah, absolutely so.
0: Yeah, I mean, after a certain amount of time, yeah, I think as a, as you get older, you realize
1: that, anyways, right? Some people do, but some people go wire to wire. You know? Yeah. What does that mean? They just wire to wire. They're just fucking stupid. <laughs> you know. And so, what I'm trying to do myself is not to be one of them. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, one of the nice things about getting older is you say, "Well, th- that was dumb."
0: Yeah. You know? Right.
1: Right. Oh, okay. And
0: also, like, it, and then one of the nice things about getting older is uh, certain things don't mean as much as they used to. Yeah. Right.
1: Uh, absolutely. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you feel about show business these days?
1: Well, you know, it's 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 a shithole as always. I said to somebody the other day, I'm thinking yeah. of moving. To D.C. from California. What for? So I, so I can be betrayed by a better class of people. <laughs> yeah, are they? Jesus Christ. Are they a better class of people? Well, it's, no, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a joke. Yeah. No, the, no they're, they're, they're all, that's the other thing, realizing about politics, is that one can have uh, political opinions which are separate from opinions of our representatives who are all, always, and ever. A bunch of fucking thieves and whores. Oh, every no. one of them.
0: craven bunch. Man. Yeah. it's just like unbelievable. I like, Every day I just sort of like, where do these people come from? How do you decide that for a life? I know, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just like, what is wrong with these fucking guys? These, these are liars.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, well, if you think about it, you know, I, I sold carpet for a living over the telephone for a while. And I was, uh, and I sold land for a living over the telephone for a while. I was very bad at it. Because in order to be a... a, a good salesman yeah you have to have no conscience right well yeah you, you have to you, the The it's all about the hustle right well yeah because because you have to put you have to make someone do something that you know is against their best interest right that's how you, you're a great car salesman so the two things that you either have to have no conscience or you have to, to develop um, a protective contempt uh-huh a protective contempt. Yeah. Yeah. These, yeah. Fucking, these stupid people. So if it, you right. think of politicians, I mean, everything they say is a lie, but every once in a while they have to come back and lie to the people. And then they see half the people say, oh, fuck you, go to hell. And the other mm-hmm. half are waving balloons and shouting, yay, yay, yay. Yeah. So of course they have contempt for the, you know, it's like they're playing poker, with the chips, that's yeah. it. It, seems, it. Hucksterism seems to be at, at, at,
0: at a certain level uniquely American.
1: Well, I think we, yeah, we, we, we've we taken it to an art form, haven't yeah. we? <laughs> yeah. Like I was going back and I was reading some of the speeches of Kennedy and he says, we must move forward. I'm thinking, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. I don't know what was. Oh, I was reading a, Nixon, a, a new biography of Nixon. Uh-huh. I was just quoting the speeches of Kennedy. We must move forward. You were a Democrat at some point. Everybody was a Democrat at some point. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> but but when you read about Kennedy, do you you, you don't uh, you don't like Kennedy now? No, and my dad, who was a uh, immigrant kid and a staunch Democrat, and yeah. labor lawyer, he didn't like Kennedy. And it was the first time, in, and I mean, you know, Kennedy was um, God bless him. They are a bad lot, yeah. You know, and you know, I mean, see, here is a guy, and he's got the Pulitzer Prize for a book he didn't write, and. He's fucking a Russian spy, and then when he got done with that, he's fucking the, the girlfriend of the head of the mafia and and, and, and Marilyn Monroe. And Marilyn Monroe. Well, okay, and then doing business with it. You know, he was he's a pretty dirty guy. He right. Came, he came from that other thing that, um, you know, as corrupt as we Jews may or may not be. I mean, it's got nothing on those on those Boston <laughs> Irish. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Right. How long do you spend time? How long in Boston were you? I think maybe twenty years. Boston's a in pretty intense place, man. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I I was there for a while, too. Well, look, man, it was good talking to you. Great
1: talking to you, too. You feel good about it? Yeah. Good. When when do we start the interview? Uh, I'm going to turn it on right now. Okay, real good. (laughs)
0: Okay, well that was me sweating through an interview with David Mammoth. I hope you enjoyed that. You can pick up David's new novel, Chicago, wherever you get books. And speaking of books, if you want a signed copy of Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF podcast, you can get one at podswag.com slash punch. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G dot com slash punch. Okay? Uh, I'll I'll play some simple guitar. I'm not gonna fucking, you know, I'm not gonna make myself crazy with it. Boomer (laughs) lives. Boomer lives.